Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men, a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and war games. I'm your host, Troy, pronouns he, him, and with me today, as always... You can call me Ed, I'm the co-host, my pronouns are they and them, and this week I will be the uh, designated crotchety old person for this podcast. Yes, and today we're talking about druids, the Dungeons and Dragons class. I've known a couple people in my life who could be considered a druid. Uh, We'll also be talking, you know, about the things that we do, uh, where they come from historically, what you can do to make an interesting druid, and really how they are taking, how they are handled in 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons. But before we get into that, we've got the hobby segment. So, Ed, what have you done in hobby in the last week? Um, I have done approximately nothing this week that's really hobby related. I got my booster vaccine and flu shot at the beginning of the week and ended up incredibly sick, far sicker than when I had coronavirus in 2020 or when I got the flu in 2016. So spent a number of days in bed, read some D&D books, and haven't really had the energy or motivation to do much else, unfortunately. I got a lot of hobby stuff done this week. I recently started two new Dungeons & Dragons campaigns. Yay! Uh, set in Eberron, we're doing some stuff in the city of Sharn. Uh, if the players are listening to this, no spoilers. But I got two good groups doing stuff online, running around Sharn. Both groups have the same plot, but have approached it in very different ways, which is interesting. And I'm looking forward to seeing how that works out. I think it'll be fun. I think they can, you know, deal with the enemies that they have to face and save everybody. Or not, if they feel like it. That's the point of Dungeons & Dragons, right? Yeah, if you're not having fun, you're not playing the game right. Or your group sucks. One of those two. Yeah. Uh, Also met up with my board game group. We did like a white elephant gift exchange, which involved almost entirely giving game-related gifts. There was a dice set. There were two or three different board games, like little... $15 $15 mini games and um, a puzzle and I gave a I put into the white elephant a like Jurassic Park dinosaur mask. I was hoping you were going to say that the white elephant ended up consisting entirely of dice sets because that would be hilarious and uh, thematic. There was only one dice set. It was a very nice one. It had one of the big metal D20s in it and I kind of wanted it, but that's fancy. I got a little board game that I didn't have already, so I will take that. And that was my weekend hobby. Now we also, I guess we also played code names, but that's that's vaguely hobby. Today's topic: the druid, the mystery of the druids. Hippies. Only in modern times are they hippies. So historically. Druids were members of a high-ranking class in ancient Celtic cultures. References left behind by other civilizations mention them as early as the 4th century BCE. They were mentioned in Roman and Greek writings referring to, you know, known cultures in the British Isles and uh, the area known as Gaul, 
at the time, sort of the French coastline now. Druids were religious leaders, legal authorities, keepers of lore and secrets, and political advisors. Um, they were something of a professional class. While they weren't like royalty, they worked for royalty a lot. They were also a very high status group. In shows like Game of Thrones, where they have the, uh, I forget the name of them, but it's the, the group of people that are the advisors and like, they know all the things and they wear chains of various metals. The maesters. Yeah, those sound very much like the historical druids. They didn't actually leave any written accounts, like, from druids themselves. There may have been some cultural element that prevented them, that prohibited them from passing knowledge down in writing. So the written druidic language is a lie, then? We've been lied to by D&D. Well, D&D doesn't refer to it as a written language, just a language. Druids were literate, as far as we know, but they didn't write down their own lore. It was all passed down verbally. Some contemporary sources claim that druids participated in human sacrifice. That doesn't sound very neutral of you. Well, archaeological evidence is ambivalent, so it's a lot more neutral there. And the human sacrifice thing may have been Roman imperial propaganda because Rome liked to paint their enemies as engaging in human sacrifice. Yeah, it sounds like a Roman thing to do. And Rome was definitely interested in invading and conquering the areas that the Druids were, you know, involved in. And when the Romans did invade and conquer Gaul and Brittany, they outlawed Druidism for the most part. Some nice land you've got there. It would be a shame if we said that there were some human sacrifices going on. It's a thing. So in Irish and Celtic folklore, Druids are prominent. They basically act like wizards, shamans sorcerers, uh, seers in other mythologies. So, you know, if you're looking for it to name your druid character, look up some Irish folklore. There's a bunch of cool named druids there. So the druids in this folklore, they were the wizard character. They were the one who tells the prophecy that somebody ignores and ends up causing or whatever. They didn't really have much of a nature connection at the time. They were just doing the sort of wizard stuff that any magical person in a mythological or folklore story would do. It wasn't until the 18th and 19th century when druids started regaining popularity as part of the Celtic revival and the neo-paganist movement. Their connection with nature was really sort of an enlightenment thing, uh, where they were seen as... We talked about the noble savage earlier. In this case, it wasn't really a noble savage thing it was you know these ancient mystical people were connected with nature and so as part of neo-paganism and the movements of the 18th and early 19th century that sort of became an idea their connection to nature and the powers of the natural world as opposed to the folklore that had them mostly as like political advisor wizards sounds like a pretty comprehensive comprehensive history to me yeah, I mean, historical druids were just wizards with different hats. But that's not how they are in D&D, so keep that in mind, maybe. Or don't. I don't tell you how to play your game. So Dungeons & Dragons druids, then. 
they've been around for a long time. In fact, the Druid might be the first example of a homebrew material for Dungeons & Dragons getting added to the base game. Nice. The class was the invention of Dennis Sustar. I'm totally pronouncing that wrong. Who was playing in a campaign in the 70s and created a Druid class after they started adding more than just the fighter, cleric, wizard. And he went to one of the early Gen Cons in Wisconsin, and a copy of the rules he had created for this homebrew druid was given to Gary Gygax. And the class got tweaked a little, and in 1976, it got published as part of the Eldritch Wizardry Rules Supplement. So in like this earliest edition, they were a subclass of the cleric and acted as priests of nature. They weren't allowed to use metal armor. They had a lot of the classic druid features from the get-go. The ability to change into animals, the druidic language, special spells related to nature, and a few other things. They could, like, pass through plants without having to use difficult terrain rules and could, like, locate good plants or different types of animals and stuff. I want to see an alignment chart now of the different kinds of plants. What is a chaotic evil plant? Kudzu. Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. Kudzu is chaotic evil. Uh, poison ivy is neutral evil. And cactuses are, I think, lawful neutral. Corn might also be chaotic evil. <laughs> what would be a lawful good plant? A uh, lawful good plant... Um, a ficus. Yeah, ficus. Ficus are good boys. Ficuses are lawful good. I mean, maybe also grapes... Now, grapes are, like, neutral good. Yeah. Well, this is something we will work on. We will create a plant alignment chart, and then people will argue about it forever. And we'll run an entirely plant-based D&D campaign. Yes, the Wrath of the Kudzu. I have no idea what setting that'll be in. Um, my backyard. In 1st edition Dungeons & Dragons, they remained very much the same as the, like, OD&D, old D&D stuff. Really, they just got an expanded spell list. They got more spells because there were more spells in the game. In 2nd edition, again, very similar. Uh, Spellcasting got tweaked a little to be more similar to the Cleric, just for ease of record keeping, essentially. And some of the weird high-level abilities that had been added to the game got removed or tweaked. Because they got kind of crazy powerful at high levels. In 3rd edition, the druid was a base class in the player's handbook. It had a few new options. They were now able to summon an animal companion at first level, having sort of, you know, a dog or owl or something with them. And the ability to change into an animal was limited to a single form that you picked. Like before, they weren't allowed to wear metal armor, although in this case, wearing it would cause them to lose their magical abilities for the next day. So you, I guess, could sometimes put on metal armor, but you wouldn't get your powers. In 3.5, it removed the restriction on only having one animal form and went back to the, like, turn into any animal you've seen thing. And it defined the animal companion and what the animal companion could do a lot more clearly because adding pets to a game in the rules can sometimes be tricky and you got to kind of know what you're doing with that. In 4th edition... Druids were included in the Player's Handbook 2. The Wild Shape ability, allowing you to turn into an animal and back, was one of their core elements. 
a lot of their combat powers involve turning into an animal and hitting somebody or turning partially into an animal and doing something and then they also had a lot of blasting spells again i have not delved deeply into fourth edition so if they got relegated into a second version of the player's handbook what was even in the fourth edition player's handbook because that's just that's nuts well the thing about the fourth edition player's handbook and fourth edition in general is that essentially each class in it got its own chapter because each class would get a number of powers that they could pick from each level and the powers were more similar to third edition fifth edition spells than they would be to the powers in other editions so it's like each class had their own spell list that you had to pick from so if you had like six classes that's six pretty thick chapters and the levels were different as well just publish a bigger book you cowards it would have been a much bigger book fourth edition was a serious departure from the traditions of D&D and that's why it's so controversial even now when no one's published it and I have not seen anyone interested in playing it in quite some time it's interesting that they decided to make such a drastic change from the traditional rules that they had and that they wanted to try something new and I applaud them for trying something new I just don't think it worked the way they wanted. And I think it had too many elements that were drawn from MMOs that were very popular at the time and that work better in an MMO when keeping track of that stuff can all be handled by the computer instead of having to know the 20 or 30 abilities that you have every round. Sorry, I always, I always got to take time to dig on 4th edition. Yeah, um, there is something to be said in sort of the way that the elements and abilities they have work with the combat. A lot of them had interesting repositioning aspects or, like, status condition aspects that are kind of neat, especially if you're in a combat-heavy game. But I don't think the rest of the stuff that went with it was worthwhile. So, yeah, that's 4th edition right there. Woo! We may have an entire podcast about it at some point. Do a whole episode just about what 4th edition was. In the next episode, I'll find some other arbitrary way to shoehorn 4th edition in there. Okay. Maybe it'll be 4th edition of a different game. Maybe we'll talk about something else. Who knows? I don't think I know of a whole lot of games that I've played that have more editions. I guess... Warhammer. Yeah. I don't think I played 4th edition of 40k. Or maybe we... I think you might have had the book. They're on like 9th edition now? I don't even know anymore. Yeah, they're on 9th edition. It's weird. They should have just stuck with 8th edition. They should have just stuck with Rogue Trader. I've been trying to find a copy of that uh, reprint of Rogue Trader that they put out several years ago. But no luck yet. Oh, well. So, Druids, though not in Rogue Trader, in Dungeons & Dragons. And by 5th edition, they kind of got the formula down. So 5th edition druids have a lot of versatility. They start with getting spellcasting, and at 2nd level can turn into animals. 
And then they have subclasses, and they've got some very interesting subclasses. Their subclasses are referred to as circles, based on the idea of druid groups that pass this learning and stylistic stuff around. And they define what the character does. The player's handbook has two of them. Two more were introduced in Xanathar's Guide to Everything, and Tasha's has three, including one that was in a different book and then just kind of got reprinted. I'm going to find a way to square that druid circle. Mm, like a circle of mechanical stuff or the circle of law <laughs> for a Modron druid? Mechanist druids. Yes, yes. Let's make it happen. Modron druids. Ugh. You know why dragons hate fighting Modrons? No. They taste lawful. <laughs> that was a genuinely good joke. I'll give you that one. Thank you. Druid circles. In the core book, you only get two. But they represent the, like, straight divide on, here's the two options of how you're going to play druids. The Circle of the Land is the classic druid. It gets more magic. You kind of pick a type of land, and that determines, like, bonus spells that you get. You can pick Arctic, Coast, Desert, Forest, Grassland, Mountain, Swamp, or just the Underdark. I guess Cave, if you're playing in a... Uh, place that doesn't have an underdark. I want to be a Fremen desert druid for Dark Sun. Dark Sun druids are very special. They they have special things, and when we do a podcast about the Dark Sun setting, we will talk about what those druids do. You hear that, Wizards of the Coast? Bring back Dark Sun already. Yes, it's just just straight up yes. You you reintroduce uh, Thrykeen as a player race. Bring back Dark Sun. It's the perfect time. Dune is in the public consciousness for the first time in, like, 40 years. Yes, Dark Sun, please. The games must flow. Circle of the Land Druid, you get bonus spells, you get more spells, and you get a lot of the abilities from the old Druid class, allowing you to go through difficult terrain, you can't be charmed by elementals or fey, stuff like that is part of the Circle of the Land Druid. It's Druid Classic. And then the other one in the player's handbook, the Circle of the Moon Druid, is kind of the fourth edition one. It makes turning, it makes using your turn into animals in combat stuff super easy and useful. It's also one of the more powerful classes at low levels, because at second level your wild shape is much easier, and you can turn into stronger forms. So you can turn into a dire wolf at second level, which has more health and a better attack than any character class is going to at that point. It's uh, it's pretty dope. Circle of the Moon Druids are... They go beast mode. That That's their thing, is they just go beast mode. Literally. Xanathars introduces the two new ones. Uh, the Circle of Dreams Druids. I like the Dreams Druid. Circle of Dreams are druids that sort of draw power from the Feywild. And Dream Realms, they get a thing to heal people and give some temporary hit points. They get some stuff to enhance rests. They get kind of abilities to walk through dreams and stuff. They're interesting. I haven't played with one of them yet. They're a supporty druid. I thought it would be interesting to do a, a Fearbolg Dream Druid since they're like tenuously connected to the Feywilds. Perhaps it would also be interesting to do the next one, which is a Circle of the Shepherd Druid. 
shepherd druids are summoners, essentially. They start by summoning a spirit totem, and then they get bonuses that allow them to summon beasts and fey and do better stuff with those summons. So a fearbolg druid that, you know, acts as a protector of these beasts and some and spirits that they summon would be real interesting and I think in keeping with the fearbolg lore where they are sort of forest keepers and guardians. Yeah, I mean you really can't go wrong with a druid as a fearbolg character. They're just that's just kind of where they sit in the lore. I mean, you might go wrong, and you might go wrong if you're using this next class subclass, which is the Circle of Spores. I like the spore one, too. It's Mushroom Druids, everybody. Who doesn't want Mushroom Druids? I had a character that I brewed up a while ago that I was when I was working at my desk job, and uh, his whole Druid power thing came from inhaling a bunch of psychedelic shrooms in the uh, basement of some building. I think that was before uh, this book came out and was officially like a thing, but his whole shtick was like mushroom-based powers. Well, Circle of Spores has been around, I think, as an unearthed arcana for a while, and then got published... I don't remember what book it was originally published in, but it got republished in uh, Tasha's Guide to Everything and sort of cleaned up. That's where most people are going to see it. Yeah, I never read any of the unearthed arcana books, so... That would explain why I'd never seen it before. There are less books and more just stuff that gets put out by Wishes of the Coast to test new ideas. They're sort of, their ability to use them in official stuff is sort of iffy. It's testing. Beta testing. Yes. So Circle of Spores druids get some stuff. They, they're kind of necromancy druids. Which is interesting. They are about, like, fungal decay and the cycle of life and death. So, yeah. They can create, basically, mushroom zombies. They can use the wild shape to sort of awaken the mushroom spores that are growing on your character. And at higher levels, they just turn into a mushroom person. I can dig it. Sort of. They Their, their body gets changed by having so many fungal stuff in them that they can't be poisoned or deafened or frightened or stuff because, you know, their body is shot through with fungus. And that's how you end up with The Last of Us Dungeons and Dragons edition. Oh yeah, just an evil Circle of Spores druid is how you would do The Last of Us in D&D. Just straight up, one of them takes over a city and starts spreading mushroom zombies throughout it, and there you go. Start your campaign. The next one is the Circle of Stars Druid. I also like the Star Druid, but was kind of underwhelmed when reading it. It seems like there's a lot of potential for it, but they just don't quite get there. Actually, I think it's quite good. I have a player doing a Circle of Stars Druid in my in one of my Eberron campaigns right now. Nice. So, Circle of Stars are kind of... I'd call them divination druids, almost. The idea is that they look to the stars and have, like, omens and stuff. The other big feature, though, is that their wild shape can be, instead of turning into a beast, they turn into, like, a constellation, where they look like a luminous collection of stars with glowing lines connecting them to form a constellation or star chart kind of thing. It sheds light. 
it lasts for 10 minutes, and it gives you a bonus of like an, a specific thing it does when you do it. Either it, one that does like a ranged attack, one that does a healing ability, and one that does a improves concentration checks for spells. So it's actually quite powerful that it picking this form gives you a extra ability that can happen all the time. And the like ranged attack one does it as a bonus action. So you can still cast spells, you can still attempt to fight people, and you get a bonus attack every turn. So that's actually quite strong. And I've noticed that already with the characters. They essentially get two attacks per turn at third level. Yeah, boy. Which isn't a problem. It's just something to know. And the last one is the Circle of Wildfire Druid. Uh, because sometimes you gotta burn everything down. Pillage and burn. So Circle of Wildfire Druids, their core thing is that they summon a wildfire spirit. And through that, they get access to basically all the fire spells. Burning Hands, Flaming Sphere, Scorching Ray, Fire Shield, Flame Strike, and also healing spells because their use of fire is burn it down in order to cause it to regrow. The Wildfire Spirits are cool elementals, basically. They do fiery stuff. And then there's also some abilities to, like, when a creature dies, you cause fire to poof up instead. It's an interesting class. I don't know how exactly I'd use it. I mean, you could do some cool, like, Phoenix-themed stuff with it. Yeah, I I like the, the Wildfire Druid, but similar to you, I was having trouble thinking of what is this class for? How do you make the best use of it? Well, it's drawing from some of the older class options. Uh, I believe 3.5 had a prestige class that was very similar to this with the fire, with the druid that burns stuff down in order to cause new growth. And older editions also had the blight druids, which were almost anti-druids where they like sucked the power of nature from the land and used that to fuel their stuff. We talked about Dark Sun briefly and that's where these things came from. That's a element of Dark Sun. Those are the core druid classes in 5th edition. Or druid subclasses, I guess. I really like the druid. It's an interesting thing. It's a spellcaster that doesn't have to just cast spells. Uh, Wild Shape gives it some options. The summoning abilities let you play around with that a lot. It's a very strong class as well, I would say. Again, Wild Shape is strong. Spellcasting in general is pretty strong. And druids get a decent number of spells. And they get a lot of spells that can be useful for controlling a battlefield. Uh, the classic one is Entangle. Yeah, Entangle is the one that I most associate with the Druid. Yes, it's been a classic Druid spell forever, but just growing plants in an area to trap people, to trap your enemies there, so that you can cast spells into it, or shoot arrows into it, or walk up and stab them one at a time, is, you know, that's the Druid move. It's the one time you say that Kudzu is useful. Yes, that's, you know... I would use something other than kudzu, just so that it doesn't overgrow the entire dungeon after you leave. But, you know, that's just me. What has druidism done? 
Druids. Uh, there's also one of the more controversial things about Druids is the wild shape. Because a lot of people want a wild shape into the strongest animal they can think of at any given time. Or the coolest animal they can think of. And because of the way the D&D books are set up, that might be a dinosaur. Because dinosaurs are in the monster manual, and they're pretty dope. Everybody loves dinosaurs. I would figure if, as long as it's an animal that you could reasonably have seen, I mean, why not? Yeah, that's the thing, is what's an animal that you can reasonably have seen? In a standard medieval fantasy setting, most people probably haven't seen dinosaurs. In fact, a lot of people probably wouldn't have seen, like, lions or rhinoceros or stuff or elephants. So should the druid be able to turn into those? I would say no, but at the same time, like, say you're a druid from, like, the jungles of Chult, and you're like, oh yeah, I want a wild shape into a Tyrannosaurus. I mean, that's going to be really overpowered, but you could be like, well, the most I could manage as this tiny, medium-sized individual is to be, like, a tiny version of a Tyrannosaurus, rather than getting, like, all the bonuses and the bigness of a full-size T-Rex, you just get a modified version of it. The thing about Wild Shape is that it restricts you based on your level and the challenge rating of the creature you're turning into. So you wouldn't be able to get turn into a T-Rex until you were reasonably high level. Do they, do they even really expand on the challenge rating versus level for Wild Shape? Because looking at the player's handbook, it seems like the challenge rating like capped out at 2 at like level 8, and I think it was... Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, where they give the list of all the examples of wild-shaped creatures, and some of those, based on their challenge rating, don't seem like you'd ever be able to wild-shape into them. Um, the Circle of the Moon Druid, which does the, like, do all the wild-shapes all the time, changes what you can do, and so that you're... At, at sixth level, you can transform into a beast with a challenge rating as high as your druid level, divided by three, rounded down. Hmm. So that's where you get the high-level druid sh challenge rating stuff. Yeah, I guess you'd still have to work pretty hard at it to get that far, but if they made it too easy, then just everybody would wild shape into the Tarrasque at every opportunity. You can't wild shape into the Tarrasque because the Tarrasque is not a beast. It's not? No, it's a monstrosity. Oh. Yeah, you have to turn into a beast, so that's not like a magical creature or anything, so... You can't turn into anything too ridiculous. I mean, and with that, by level 15, you can turn into a CR5 monster, which, like, that's the Triceratops or the, um, I mean, that's not quite the Mammoth. You'd have to be level, what, 18 to turn into a Mammoth? Level 15, you can turn into giant crocodiles or giant sharks or whatever. You have that ability. I'm going to wild shape into a shark on land. Land shark? Beat me to it. Tasha's has a chart that lists off what kind of animals are appropriate to turn into in various biomes, which is helpful, I think. Tasha's and Xanathar's are some of the best uh, splat books that have come out of Dungeons & Dragons. A lot of the stuff in Xanathar's would probably have been nice to have in the Dungeon Master's Guide, if I'm perfectly honest. Yeah... I, I got that same feeling. I mean, I appreciate having the classic 
magical items in the Dungeon Master's Guide, maybe it would have been better to have more of the, like, useful encounters and stuff in the DMG and then have a separate book that's just magic items. Just a big repository of all the cool magic items that characters can, like, look at and be like, I want that. You could also do, like, the third edition magic item compendium, maybe. Just do that as an inexpensive splat book. Yeah, a cool magic item compendium. Name it after, I don't know, some wizard. Elminster. No. Morden Kanan. Nah, he's the, like, plains dude. Um. Who's the one, the, the, um, the weird, like, lobster mech submarine thing? Lobster mech submarine. Yeah, that's one of the magical items. It's named something. I don't think I've seen that one yet. Oh, that's a classic one. Apparatus of Calwish or something. It's some, like, gnome inventor who built a lobster submarine. Nice. It's a, it's a, it's been around for a while. We'd have to look around for some famous gnome tinker slash artificer. Yeah, and have a magical compendium of stuff that is hosted by them the way you've got these other books hosted by characters. Yep. Yeah, that's what I want, is I want a, just a compendium of all the magic items, including a bunch of new, interesting ones. You hear that, wizards? Bend to our will. Yes. First Dark Sun, then big compendium of cool magic items. Get on it. I don't know if it would be a cool job or not to work at Wizards of the Coast. I have heard that the labor conditions are not great, so I'd still be interested. Wizards, give me a call. I think you've got definitely more of a shot uh, than I do, unless they need somebody to fiddle with their electricity. I mean, who doesn't need someone to fiddle with their electricity? Yeah, I'll turn your electricity back on as soon as you uh, provide good working conditions for your employees. I'll turn your electricity back on as soon as you publish a Dark Sun book. Try writing your splat books by candlelight now. Ha ha ha. Wizards, we are not going to hold you hostage. Nothing legally actionable in Minecraft, etc. I may just cut this out. (laughs) The Druid, based off ancient Celtic religious leaders, legal authorities, and magicians. They're fun in 5th edition D&D, and I say go play them. If you want to cast nature spells and turn into animals. Nature good. So we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner. And today what we're talking about is a board game that doesn't have a board. I guess it's a card game. It's it, You'll find it in board game stores. It's fine. Because it's Star Realms. Star Realms is a two-player, but more players if you buy expansions, deck-building game with a sci-fi theme and a pretty basic mechanic. It's it's deck-building Magic the Gathering. You have a collection of cards. Each player starts with the same basic hand of cards. There are additional cards that you can buy, and then you kind of do damage to each other until one player is out of hit points and loses. It's themed on science fiction. There's four factions in the game. The Machine Cult, which are cyborgs. Their cards do stuff mostly with a mixture of damage and resource gain, but also are like card management in that they let you discard stuff and draw new things. There's the Empire, which is a lot of Imperial combat dudes. They could be Klingons or 
I guess, the Empire from Star Wars. They are very... They do a lot of damage. They don't do a lot of resource gathering. They do a decent amount of card management in terms of drawing new cards and forcing your opponent to discard. There's the Trade Federation, or just the Federation, who are aesthetically very much based on the Federation from Star Trek. They're blue, they're happy, they have diplomacy ships. They do a lot of resource building and a lot of synergy between their own stuff that's quite strong. They're also one of the only factions that helps gain hit points again. They're kind of a healer. And there's the Blobs, which are your standard, like, space biotech. They're your Tyranids, your Zerg, your... I'm sure there's a million other options. I just can't think of any off the top of my head for the scary biological space group. The Engineers. The Engineers? Sure. Oh, they're from, uh... The Alien Universe. Okay. Yeah, or I guess the aliens from the Alien Universe. Yeah, the engineers ended up... The engineers created the aliens as biological weapons. Right. But yeah, the Blobs, they do a lot of damage, a small amount of resource gathering, and their big thing is that, like the Federation, their cards link together really strongly. And so you purchase cards from these factions, you put them into your hand, or you put them into your deck, you... Standard deck building stuff applies. You try to do more damage to the enemy before they do it to you. It's a pretty straightforward game. It's a great two-player starter game because you can play it over and over and over again with just a single deck of cards. And if you want to add expansions, you can buy some and pretty quickly get it up to four players or more. And there's a ton of expansions for it. And they keep coming out with new ones. So there's a lot of different content to change it up. And it's pretty inexpensive because it's just cards. And unlike Magic the Gathering, you never need to buy more copies of it to get more of certain cards. Woo! Also, everybody starts with the same deck. So unlike Magic the Gathering... You never have to worry about your opponent bringing a $200 card and just defeating you immediately. Yeah, I liked uh, I like playing Star Realms. I've I've seen it at local stores, and I always consider like grabbing one while I'm there. But at the same time, just knowing the way the world is, I don't know when we'll actually get to play in person again. So I'm like, do I really want to invest in a card game that's going to sit on my shelf for? a long time, but I think it's also up on uh, Tabletop Simulator now. I could be wrong, but I thought I saw it there. I think it's on Tabletop Simulator. Um, they have an app. Oh, yeah, I remember the app. I tried playing it on the app, but I remember not getting along with it super well. That may have changed since then. I've used the app a bit. It's all right. I like playing it in person more. If you are interested in it and you want to do it on the app, try the app. And like we said, it is available in almost every local game store I've been to. I've seen this on the shelf somewhere or behind the counter uh, because it's small and not super expensive and easy to stock. So if you think you want to try a deck building game and maybe you've got somebody in your house that you can play with and you want something that you know doesn't take up a lot of time, 
TriStar Realms. It's sci-fi. It's deck building. Woo! They also have a version called Hero Realms. That's a fantasy one. Yeah, I was just about to say that. I like science fiction more than fantasy, so I do Star Realms. I think I'm more of a fantasy type nerd, but having started with Star Realms, I know that I'm just going to compare it to Star Realms and be like, eh, it's just a fantasy knockoff of this game that I already played. I mean, it's not really a knockoff because it's the same people. And that's our episode for this week. As always, thank you for listening. Support your local unions. Uh, support your local game stores. Uh, never cross a picket line. Yep. Follow us on social media. Unless you hate social media, in which case, don't follow us on social media. Social media was a mistake, but I'm still there. Social media was a mistake, but you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Well, okay, I guess you can put the genie back in the bottle if you use, like, a wish spell or something. But, unfortunately, we don't have access to that. None of us have ninth level spell slots. Can't put that algorithm back in the in the hard drive. We can try. Eh. That, that metaphor didn't really work. We'll do another three of them, and then we'll have a metaphor. <laughs> nice. Uh, thank you for listening. Catch us next time.